Okay, we are in Revelation chapters 9 and 10. We got a little bit into chapter 9 last time, but the interest of continuity and because we have so many guests here, we'll start and pick up chapter 9 at verse 1. We're, chapter 9 is regarded, I believe, by most of the commentators that I'm familiar with as um, one of the most difficult passages in the book of Revelation. There are many other passages that give many people trouble, but I think when you get there, you'll find that we have some, we think we've got good biblical insight. But chapter 9 is a tough one. We've got two demonic armies unleashed, and they're subject to all kinds of conjectures and speculations. Those of you that are doing homework in this area, I encourage you to read carefully Joel chapter 2 and 3 as background and so forth. Now, you need to remember, in the period of time that we're going to be plunging into here, the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ, the church, is gone. Now, we glibly talk about that, and most of us get hung up with all kinds of timing and eschatological issues, but the truth of the matter is, most of us have probably no ability to imagine the world without the present situation enduring. We may uh, get concerned about failures of the church. We get concerned about attacks from without and within. But the truth of the matter, even as it stands, it's an incredible restraining influence. We notice, even in our culture, especially here in America, that restraining influence being removed, not in a rapture sense, but in a, in a, in a functional sense. And uh, that's con- that should concern us. But now get the picture. In chapter 9, 10, by now, the Holy Spirit is, in the sense that he indwells the church, has been removed. That restraining influence should give us... Uh, the removal that should give us pause. So let's jump in, and we're going. Chapter nine starts with the, what's called the fifth trumpet, but the last three trumpets, five, six, and seven, also are called woes. The three woes of Revelation are the last three trumpet judgments. They have, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit's done. He's given them some special names. And chapter 9, verse 1, The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Now, the actual Greek says it has fallen. It's not falling present tense. It had already it had fallen. And the star is generally regarded by most people as some kind of angel. Daniel 12, 3, Isaiah 14 are references here. The, it's a person because it's referred to as a hymn. And he is given a key. So while it's a star, that term is used in Daniel 12, 3 and elsewhere as an illuminary of some kind. Now, it's interesting that his authority was not complete. The key had to be given to him. And I think most scholars visualize him as either Satan himself or one of his main illuminaries. And in Luke uh, chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus speaks of Satan beheld as lightning falling from heaven. And, of course, this is also prophesied in Isaiah chapter 14, one of the two primary background chapters on the origin of Lucifer or Satan. And uh, that's all, I'm sure, good background, or if not, you can do your digging on that. Now, it's interesting that he has a key of the abuso in the, in the Greek. The word abuso is typically translated, most of English translations, as the bottomless pit. It goes by a few other labels. It occurs about nine times in the New Testament, about 30 times in the Old Testament. It occurs seven times in the book of Revelation. Now, this abuso gets a lot of visibility. You may recall in... On this, speaking of these angels that had sinned as being bound in the Abuso. And uh, the angels that sinned, we have that whole background that led to the flood of Noah. The series of bizarre episodes that occurred in early parts of Genesis 6, when the Benai Elohim, a term, Old Testament term for angels, somehow 
had uh, unnatural offspring on the earth. Presumably in Satan's attempt to corrupt the, the line, to his way to thwart the messianic line, which led to the, the uh, flood of Noah. If that sounds bizarre to you, I encourage you to do some background on Genesis 6. We have a briefing package called The Flood of Noah that will develop that. The most interesting thing to me about Noah's flood isn't the flood, it's the circumstances that led to it. But I'll leave you to do that. But I call your attention to the fact that the Genesis 6, 2 Peter 2, and Jude 6 all give you background on the abuso. Now, what we're finding here, for whatever reason, is that these creatures bound all this time are loosed upon the world. And it's a, a, needless to say, it's, get, it's going to get pretty rough. It's interesting in Luke 8, verse 31, you may recall when they had the de- demoniac at Gadara, this demon-possessed guy that ended up having, what, 2,000 demons in him. You can imagine that. And uh, when the Lord goes to cast them out, it's very interesting. That passage is very critical to understand because the demons recognize who he is. They call him, you know, the Son of God. And he had not announced that by then. They knew who he was, and they also knew they had a destiny. Are you come to punish us before our time, they ask. See, one of the reasons that's in there, I believe, is to communicate to us that the demon possession thing is not anachronism for what we can consider psychiatric problems. These are sentient, knowledgeable beings hostile to the interests of mankind that, given the opportunity, will uh, take over your life. You have sovereignty, but given an entry, they will, will uh, be disastrous. It's interesting, though, they beg Jesus Christ not to send them to the Abuso, but rather to uh, enter this uh, herd of swine that's nearby, which, of course... Interestingly enough, the Lord grants that permission. You can wonder why. Maybe just instruct us. And, of course, the whole herd goes off the cliff. It's recorded in several of the Gospels, and you can do the background. But, again, it's interesting that the abuso is something that the demons dread. They beg to avoid. And yet Isaiah 24, verses 21 and 22, implies that after many days they would be visited. The view is, is that Jesus, during those three days that he was in the tomb, visited the area to... Declare the victory over Satan. Of course, in Revelation 20, we're going to discover that Satan will be imprisoned there for a spell. Well, that's one verse. Verse 2, And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And this smoke, again, you can take a concordance and find a, do a very instructive study. You'll discover the smoke shows up with Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19. But, of course, it's also very prominent in the giving of the law in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai and many other places. There is smoke seems to be uh, a frequent allusion in the Scripture. And I'm not implying that they're the same smoke. Don't misunderstand me. But it's interesting we find uh, that occurring. Verse 3. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as scorpions of the earth have power. Now, you may recall when we studied the plagues of Egypt, the eighth plague was... Locusts, but these, those were literal locusts. They went after herbs and green things, as you may recall. The plague there in the scripture is also never to be repeated, the scripture says. The one in Egypt, that particular plague. Now, these locusts in Revelation 9 are not normal locusts because they have a king. Verse 11 will deal with that. But just understand, these are idioms of a demon horde of some kind. They're going to have a power for five months. And that seems to be hint of Genesis 7, but we'll keep moving on here. Verse 4, And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing nor any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their forehead. 
Now you may recall in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation, we saw these unusual people sealed by the seal of God. God knows those who are his. And these strange demonic creatures are powerless over those that have the seal of God in their foreheads. I'm not implying that the 144,000 are the only ones sealed, but we don't know of others, but it could be a broader category than that. In any case, it takes supernatural protection to avoid the harm of these strange creatures. Verse 5, And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. Well, I'm glad that I don't have any personal experience to supplement this of myself. I have done a lot of reading, and I do understand from the reading that the bite of a scorpion is one of the most painful things you can endure. It's not fatal, but it's incredibly painful for a substantial period of time. There are all kinds of conjectures as why five months, but there's no real scriptural illumination, so I won't add to those speculations. But it's interesting that the Scripture is very clear that this is an, you know, a temporary or interim kind of... In other words, it's not fatal and it's, it has a, a finite duration. Verse 6 is one of the most puzzling verses to me personally in the entire book. It says, And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. Clearly the intent of the passage is to make it clear how desperate men are. They would prefer to die than to live. That's pretty rough. How this really operates, what this implies, I have thought a lot about, and I I can't give you any even enlightened conjectures. Uh, I can't imagine someone who is really serious uh, not being able to accomplish that goal. And yet the Scripture makes it quite clear that uh, they will seek death and not find it. They shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. Verse 7, And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. Now notice, be very sensitive to this in the book of Revelation. There's many times it says it very expressly, and when it does, I take it very literally. That doesn't mean its application is only literal, but I would never deny the literal application if it fits. But several times you'll notice, we saw that back in the trumpet judgments where we had the mountain, as something as it were like a mountain fall in the ocean. Those are, that's a clue, that's a grammatical communication that it's, an, it's a simile that's being drawn. It's a comparison. And these are like unto horses prepared unto battle. Now, many, many commentators quickly get pictures of military hardware and all that kind of thing. And I personally, while I wouldn't deny those kinds of things, I think that's missing the point. We're talking about a demon army, and these locusts are being described. Again, they're idioms of these demons. Now, I've never seen a demon, so I'm not in a position to make comparisons here. But apparently these are visible to John, and he describes them. It's interesting to notice that even natural locusts have the appearance of horses equipped with armor. If you've ever looked at, examined them closely or looked at a, a, a zoological uh, textbook of some kind, it's interesting. The German term is Hüpferd, which is hay horse, because of the similarity. The Italian term is cavalletta, which is a little horse. But it's interesting that in the foreign vocabulary for locusts even embodies this horse-like appearance that they have when examined. 
But these, of course, going on, had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And again, you'll find similar allusions to this kind of thing in Joel chapter 1, verse 6, and elsewhere. Verse 9, and they had breastplates, as it were, breastplates of iron. But see, again, as it were, breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was at the sound of chariots of many horses running into battle. It's interesting, uh, none of us, I suspect, have had any real experience with the Middle Eastern locust plague. But apparently one of the most horrifying aspects of it is to hear them munching as they come. The sound is apparently uh, loud and very frightening. But uh, again, even though natural locusts are in fact frightening, these are demonic creatures we're seeing described here. Verse 10, And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And I I, uh, call your attention to some other passages, Isaiah 9 uh, verses 14 and 15 allude to this kind of thing. And Amos chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 do. But we'll just keep moving here. Verse 11. And this is a key verse for many reasons. Much of what you can dig out on your own with a, with a good concordance, I'm going to sort of leave to you as we go through. You could spend a great deal of time, in fact a lifetime, studying the book of Revelation alone. And your most powerful tool is a good, exhaustive concordance, like a Strong's or its equivalent. And if you happen to have computer software, it's enormously helpful to quickly find out where these words, especially the original, either Greek or Hebrew, is used elsewhere in the Scripture. Because I believe, after 40 years of study, that's the whole key to this book, is to recognize that it is rendered into signs, but every sign is explained somewhere in the Scripture. And I encourage you, to do your own study of each of these words. And usually the first place it occurs in the Bible, any word, the first place it occurs in the Bible is usually very, very key to the understanding, the use of that term uh, throughout the Scripture. So as we go through here, I'll try to confine my primary remarks to overview things or tie together things, the integrity of the design, if you will, and and those things that you would not have occasion without a lot of digging to, to come across. But verse 11 is one of these verses that I think is going to be very fruitful for us. It says, And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. Now, Abaddon in the Hebrew and Apollyon in the Greek, Abaddon comes six times, occurs six times in the Old Testament, but you've got to look at it in the Hebrew because it's usually translated destruction from the Hebrew. You'll find it six times in Job 26, Job 28, Job 31, Psalm 88, and Proverbs 15 and 27. Anyway, the Greek equivalent term is Apollyon, which means destroyer. And in John 10.10, Jesus so identifies Satan that he came to destroy. So the term destroyer, whether in Greek or Hebrew, is another one of these titles we could validly ascribe to the one we think of as Satan, the accuser or Lucifer, originally the angel of light, and so forth. He has many titles in the scripture, and I encourage you to to study those. You need to understand, he's the prince of the power of the air. Strange title. That'll become more meaningful to us when we get to the bold judgments being poured out on his throne. These judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are climactic. It's like a logarithmic scale to the base seven. And it's going to climax on Satan's own throne. But another title of him that we should all be conscious of is that he's the prince of this world, the god of this age. And as you look around our country, you look around the world, and you see what appears to be the reign of sin, the, the, the prevalence of deceit and injustice 
You need to recognize who the God of this world is. And the good news is God is going to straighten this all out. One of the great mysteries that we're going to encounter in the next chapter, the mystery of God, is why does he wait so long? Don't we wish he would have straightened this out long ago? One of the great mysteries in the Bible that has no good crisp answer is why does God allow sin to prevail? He has his reasons. But the good news is that the time will come, he's going to straighten it all out. And it's coming quickly. And uh, we'll be dealing with that as we go here. But the other aspect of verse 11 I want to highlight is that the locusts have no... First of all, these locusts have a king over them. And that sounds like a technicality. But if you look at Proverbs chapter 30, verse 27. Proverbs 30, verse 27. You find this strange phrase. The locusts have no king. And the context of the passage in, in uh, Proverbs is, is uh, naturalistic, broad. The writer there drops that insight. And if you've been to one of our Bible studies, you know that we've, we've sold very hard and long the idea that there's nothing accidental or trivial in Scripture. We have 66 books in our laps, written by 40 authors over thousands of years, that are an integrated message system. Every detail, every number, every place name is there by design and for a purpose. Why is Proverbs 30.27 in your Bible? First of all, so you'll understand Revelation 9.11. Because it demonstrates that these locusts are not some kind of natural locusts. They're not natural locusts that are super. They are supernatural locusts. They're idioms being used to communicate something beyond our normal vocabulary, namely these demon creatures. Now this turns out to be interesting to know because of a discovery that Hal Lindsey and I were involved with a few years ago. And um, it turns out that Hal and I were doing an intense study on Ezekiel 38 for some publications we were preparing together. But unrelated to that, I happened to be studying Amos chapter 7 verse 1. And Amos chapter 7 verse 1 in your English Bible is rather strange. It says, Thus hath the Lord God shown unto me, and behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. What does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> but I had the occasion to check it out in the Septuagint. You see, your English Bible, yours English Bible and mine, is a translation from the Masoretic text, which is about the 9th century A.D. Hebrew text. But over a thousand years earlier, roughly uh, the 3rd century before Christ, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. And that, the product uh, was, is called the Septuagint, a fancy word meaning 70. And the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, that is in Greek, is a very, very valuable document. It has some peculiar differences from the classic Hebrew Bible, from which we get our English text. And this passage happens to be one of those. I'm among those that suspect that scholars have not given enough weight to the Septuagint translation. Most of your quotes in the New Testament of the Old are from the Septuagint, by the way. Paul frequently quotes from the Septuagint, from the Greek. But in any case, if you look at Amos 7.1 in the Septuagint, it says that... Um, the Lord hath shown me, and behold, a swarm of locusts were coming. So far, so good. It's pretty parallel. But then it says, And behold, one of the young, devastating locusts was Gog the king. Now, in the nature, it's the nature of the Hebrew text that a subtle mark can change the meaning substantially. So it turns out 
That may not mean a lot to you, but the whole mystery of the Gog and Magog battle in Ezekiel 38, now there's many mysteries there, but there many of them are unraveling very quickly before us. But Gog, by context, is clearly the leader of Magog, the people of Russia, in this ill-fated invasion of Israel in which God himself is going to intervene in. And, and we believe that's about to happen any time now. We believe that will precede Armageddon and what have you. It's one of the places that a number of us uh, have friendly disagreements. Hal Lindsay and I, that's the only place I know of where we have a, a friendly difference of opinion. And Hal is certainly a competent, able scholar, so I shouldn't defer. But Grant Jeffries and I and Chuck Smith and others believe that, for technical reasons, Ezekiel 38 precedes the whole 70th week of Daniel for various reasons. But the main point is, this guy Gog is their leader, but it's very unlike God to have a leader show up with no linkage. Right up Suddenly in Ezekiel 38 you're confronted with him, and, and he's alluded to several times later, but not in very illuminating ways. And you sort of wonder, especially since he, after that battle, they're bound for, uh, he's, uh, a thousand years later they show up again. Gog and Magog to show up. It's a people. It's understandable. But Gog, the leader, is a little strange. Well, now the fog lifts because if Gog is the king of the locusts, that tells us from what we've just learned in Revelation 9 and Proverbs 30, 27, that locusts have no king, so a locust king is really a biblical idiom for a demon leader. And then suddenly that whole thing starts to get clear. That doesn't mean there won't be a literal leader, but obviously there's a demon force behind him. And so I mention that because that all derives, if you will, out of uh, Proverbs 30:27, tied to Revelation 9, etc. So uh, as God's people, we can be very grateful that Jesus alone holds the keys to hell and death. Revelation 1:18 made that point to us. He has his timetable. Nothing comes too early or too late. And that's going to be emphasized before this chapter is over. But verse 12 thus completes the fifth trumpet or the first woe of the three in Revelation. One woe is past, and behold, there come two more woes hereafter. So you can find books filled with all kinds of conjectures as to what this demon horde is, but it is what it says it is. It's a demon horde coming out of the Abuso to torment men as part of a series of things that will be unleashed upon the planet Earth in preparation for it being taken over. By the way, uh, supernatural armies have previously appeared in Scripture. See, that's a strange idiom for our ears because we're not that familiar with it. But you may recall when Elijah was separated from Elisha, it was by horses and a chariot of fire back in 2 Kings chapter 2 when Elisha was taken to heaven. There was a, some evidence of that. When Dothan was besieged by the army of Syria, you remember Elisha's servant was getting uh, pessimistic and confused. In uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, there's a strange episode where he's really panicked. And uh, Elisha almost, I, get, I would almost read that with a certain amount of impatience. Lord, show him, you know. Let the kid in on it. And uh, the servant's eyes are open. He discovers that around all these enemy troops, around them are chariots of fire, unseen before. How many of you use the word processor? Can I see how many people use the word processor? You know, it's interesting. If you use the word processor... You're conscious of the fact that there are a lot of things that go on you really don't want to be bothered with. Whether it's a soft or hard return, whether there's a, a certain commands for fonts, and there's just dozens of things that you, from time to time, need to get into, but in general, you don't want to be bothered, so they're invisible. But somewhere in your software, there's a code or a key you push which reveals the codes behind the scenes. And usually on your screen, maybe in a different color, are all these things, whether it's a soft or hard return, or whether it's a hyphen or a, a hyphenated word, which is different, and whatever, all these little subtleties that you normally don't want to be bothered with, and yet you can see them. 
and to make certain subtle corrections, but of course to go on with it, you have this, you have this revealed code scheme. Whenever I think of Elisha, I always think of Elisha's servant, I always think that's our problem in life. You and I need a revealed codes key. When there's times we get discouraged or we're reading these passages and things are getting heavy, wouldn't you like to be able to push the revealed codes key and say, oh, okay, you know, there they are, all right, now let's get on with it, see? But um, it's interesting, uh, 2 Kings uh, 6 is the area you can study that on your own. Also, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he returns to the earth, he and his, the armies of heaven will be riding on horses. So just as an aside. So I think that uh, the idioms, the biblical idioms here are not that unusual. But now at verse 13, we're at the sixth trumpet, the second woe. This is the, we're going to encounter a second demon army here in the book. The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Now, by the way, this, of course, is the altar of incense that we talked about when we were in Revelation chapter 8, verses 3, 4, and 5. We dealt with that. Now, it's interesting, something that startled me when I did some homework I had forgotten. We always think of the golden altar as the altar of incense only. That is, the altar where the incense being idiomatic, if you will, of the prayers of the saints. That's good background on those of you that have studied the tabernacle. It's interesting, though, that in Exodus 30, verse 10, you'll discover there was once a year they put blood on that altar, on the horns of the altar, as part of the routine. It's all, 1 Kings 13 deals with that, too. But in any case, uh, verse 14, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the river Euphrates. Now, this is kind of wild. Whenever you encounter the number four, it usually suggests something having to do with the creation. And there's no magic about these numerical uh, connotations. The way they develop is simply by studying the Scripture. You'll discover certain numbers are always used characteristically the same way. The number seven, of course, is completeness. Not holiness, necessarily, but completeness. Remember, Satan has seven heads. I mean, in one of the idioms. So, seven is is not divine. Many people mistake that. People haven't been to Las Vegas. Seven is a biblical implication of completeness, complete knowledge or complete holiness or complete power or whatever. Six is one short of that, the number of man. And six thus becomes the number of sin or man or failure and so forth. The number five, if you study it, it's not quite as crisp, but you can make the case that it always refers to God's grace. God's grace. And you can get into a whole thing on these numbers, and some people go off the deep end with this, and and uh, they should have our prayers. But uh, in the meantime, it is useful at least be sensitive that these numbers are not without some connotation. And the number four, you'll discover, tends to be, if you just study every place four appears in Scripture, you can see that more often than not, it somehow relates to the creation. You know, there's four points of the compass. There's the, they speak of the four corners of the earth. You know, these, these are just idioms in our language. Obviously, we're not guilty of thinking the earth is flat and square and all that. Critics like to make fun of that, but it's just it's the idiom of our language. And it's interesting, I always used to wonder why four, though. Because, yes, there are four points of the compass and so on. That sort of works, maybe. Until I started studying particle physics. Because I discovered that Nachmanides, 800 years ago, studying Genesis 1, concluded the universe has ten dimensions. Only four are knowable. Six are not knowable in his parlance. And that, comes, that gets to be a provocative observation by this ancient Hebrew sage writing in the 12th century. 
It's interesting when today particle physicists have now discovered or concluded that our universe, our physical universe, has ten dimensions. Four of them are knowable or measurable in the direct sense, length, width, height, and time. The three spatial dimensions plus time. Six of them are curled in less than 10 to the minus 33 centimeters and therefore are inferable only by indirect means. But the current equations, that, as they pursue a th- you know, the superstrings and all that sort of stuff, are all built on a 10-dimensional presumption. But I think it's interesting that the physical universe, mathematically, is definitive in four dimensions, not 10, or not, that we can sense. So I don't know if there's any connection at all, but it hit me the other day as I was studying this. I wonder if the number of four tied to the creation may have some mathematical or particle or quantum physics implications. I don't know. I'll leave that to you to, to uh, come to your own conclusions about. There's apparently four angels bound in the great river Euphrates. Now, these are not good guys, or they wouldn't have to be bound, right? They must be loosed. Now, this raises the whole mystical implications of the river Euphrates. That's another thing I encourage you to study on your own. The river Euphrates has has many implications. First of all, it's the eastern boundary of Israel. Uh, In Genesis 15, 18 is the land grant of God to Abraham, and it reaches a distance that they have never achieved. I believe that it will be achieved in the millennium. But I love that passage because when people want to talk about the West Bank, I I like to ask them, which river? You see? didn't know Jordan was the only one-bank river in the world, did you? But... um, uh, no, we're not talking. Here we're talking about the River Euphrates, the eastern boundary of Israel. It's mentioned in Genesis 15:18, Deuteronomy 1:7, Joshua chapter 1, verse 4, and elsewhere. It also, strangely enough, becomes the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire managed to control virtually most of the known world of that time up to the river Euphrates. East of the Euphrates was the Parthian Empire, an empire that even Rome trembled at. The Parthian Empire had as its senior priestly caste a group called the Magi. It was a hereditary priesthood of the Medes, and yet earlier, before the Roman Empire, Cyrus appointed Daniel to be in charge of this, who was not a Mede, he was a Jew which wasn't very popular with the Medes. That's why they staged this lion's den thing. But Daniel apparently gave this hereditary caste of uh, kingmakers, a priestly ruling caste, a cabal of them had a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the Magi come to visit Jerusalem that time, Herod was terrified. They didn't come alone. They came with cavalry. Herod was thought, thought they might be creating a border incident because of the tensions between... See, Judah, Judea was a buffer state between the Roman and Parthian empires. And so uh, when they ask him, where is he that's born king of the Jews? They're saying this to a guy that was appointed by Rome who was a non-Jew. He was threatened by that, but he didn't mess around. They had their cavalry with them. Most people don't understand the Magi. If you're interested in that, you might get our little briefing package called The Christmas Story, What Really Happened? You might get a kick out of that. In any case, the Parthian Empire was one that even Rome was nervous over. Lots of interactions between them. But again, we see the Euphrates somehow being mystically, and thus in culture, it's regarded the dividing line between the East and the West. And um, Rudyard Kipling, I said, East is East and West is West, and never the twain shall meet. Well, he's almost right. They're not going to meet until these four angels are released, and then all kinds of strange things happen. Now, this whole idea of the river Euphrates dates from the Garden of Eden. There are lots of reasons why we associate the Garden of Eden with Euphrates, but the Garden was not in Eden, it was east of Eden. Well, where does that make Eden? West of the Garden. 
And that's the area that God has staked out for himself that we call the state of Israel. Interesting. Sin began there, Genesis 2. The first murder occurred there. Nimrod built his first symbol of rebellion, the Tower of Babel there, which led to Babylon, the fountainhead of all idolatry, which will be the scene of the last stand and how the power structure moves from the Gentile west back to Babylon is described by Zechariah in chapter 5. But we'll talk about that later as we get to some of those things in the book of Revelation. A divided kingdom cannot stand, we're told in the scripture. This appears to be a division in Satan's kingdom. He has been prevented from integrating his empire. These removal of these four angels, the loosing of them, uh, apparently is a play for him. And as far as Asia is concerned, it's interesting that all the demon religions are east of the Euphrates. India alone is said to have 33 million gods. When you start looking at the uh, demon worship that characterized the other Asian religions, it's not hard to get to 200 million, which is what we're going to see manifest here in a few more verses. All the gods of the heathen are demons, Psalm 96 verse 5 tells us in the Septuagint, incidentally. It is interesting that in the 1991 Persian Gulf War, the United States Army's 24th Mechanized 101st Airborne Division, Screaming Eagles, trapped the elite Republican Guard of Iraq by pinning it, what? Against the Euphrates. Kind of interesting. Verse 15, the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour, a day, and a month, and a year to slay a third part of men. Two interesting things here. There's a specific time appointed for this, and I submit to you a specific time appointed for all of this in this book. And we should take comfort in that. God has a plan. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. But it's interesting. They're going to slay a third part of men. We've already seen in Revelation chapter 6, verse 8, that a fourth of the men were killed. So by the time we get to here, over half the world will have been slain by the variety of things that are going to erupt on the earth. The seals dealt primarily with what you might consider natural disasters. And the trumpets are starting to deal with disasters that emerge from Satan's own doing. And the seven bowls are what God's wrath adds to all of that. So anyway, verse 16, And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand. And I heard the number of them. So they're apparently numbered. Now many people, and I've I've been guilty of this myself, have viewed these as a 200 million man army coming from the Far East. The scripture will say later, it's going to allude to the river Euphrates making way for the kings of the rising sun. That's a classic way of referring to the East. So don't make too much of that necessarily. But the point is, it may be in fact that, number of commentators dwell on that as pointing out that that kind of an army is gigantic, first of all. To give you some feeling for this, the 30-nation coalition that made up the 1991 Persian Gulf War you know, against Iraq uh, added up to a combined total of a million men. We're talking 200 million here, if they're men, as in the normal sense of the term. It is interesting that the enormous population of China is one of its most powerful strategic weapons. They are methodically taking their surplus population and letting it move west, that is, into Russia. And Russia is panicked. They have an undefendable border. And this surplus population is pouring into 
them. It's interesting that each year there's 100 million people added to the population of the earth, and 95% of that population is from the third world. Since the birth rate exceeds the economic growth, that means we're every, every year the, the nominal citizen of the earth gets poorer because the birth rate's greater than the, growth, the economic growth rate. But again, let's keep in mind that what we do know is that these are demons. Verse 17, and thus I saw, John says, I saw the horses in the vision and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire of jacinth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. Now the colors are just as striking as these creatures are unnatural. Fiery red, dark blue and bright yellow are suggested by the idioms there in the Greek. You know, if you believe the passage, you scarcely need any comment. Difficulties occur from the passage from disbelief. If you just accept what it says, there's no problem. If you don't accept what it says, you've got bigger problems than what really makes up these strange creatures. Demonic forces are at work here. Verse 18, By these three were the third part of the men killed, by the fire, by the smoke, and by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, and their tails were like unto serpents, and their, they had heads, and with them they do hurt. The rest of the men, which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Well, we don't do that, do we? You don't think that parking an idol in the garage doesn't mean you're not worshiping it? I don't I want a show of hands, okay? No, it's interesting that all of us, whether we realize it or not, are guilty, at least in some sense, of doing having some idolatry. What's manifest here is a major global commitment to idolatry, and this is the the reward it's reaping. It's interesting that these judgments are not remedial. Nowhere in the scripture do I know of a case where the judgments cause a change of heart. Men persist in their sins. Romans 3.11 tells us there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. But, but of course, not at the end of Romans 3.11. The footnote is only but by the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God. Every one of us in this room that are a member of God's family are here by a miracle of His doing. Not because of any insight or resolve or strength or capacity on our part. If you believe that, you've got a problem. You need to really understand the grace of God. It changes everything. Now, if you worship anything but the living God, whether you know it or not, you're worshiping a demon. There's a demon behind the issue. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 19 to 21 will deal with that. Now, idols can typically include works of our hands, buildings of our construction, machines that we design, and so forth. Dead sinners worshiping dead idols. That describes the world today and certainly is the world that is being encountered here. In your notes, you can put Psalm 115 to read devotionally in this regard sometime soon. Now, very few people set out to worship demons knowing that they're demons. So how does it happen? Well, first of all, they seek the advice of a spirit being through a channel or a medium. That's one way to start. 
Or it might be more innocuous. It might be an amulet that you get as a gift or seek out at some shop. A lucky charm. A horoscope or a Ouija board. Just frivolous children's toys. No. They're called by the professionals entries. It's a toehold. It's a toehold on your will and your resolve. You're seeking the future by some other method than the living God of the universe. It's amazing to me, as I travel through corporate boardrooms in America, having served on 12 of them in traffic for a 30-year career in the senior levels of corporate America, it's amazing to me to see well-educated, successful, intelligent men and women of our culture harboring views and practicing rituals that are nothing more than repackaged pagan rituals of prior ages. I used to go into a corporate lobby and find magazines of the occult on the chairman of the board's coffee table, that kind of thing. It used to baffle me. You know, the estranged youth, the fringe groups, sure, I can understand that, but you discover that it's far more prevalent than you and I have any idea. And I suspect that the higher levels, the richer you are and the more free time you have, the more time you have, you get sucked into these delusions. One of the interesting lessons, and I have to touch upon this while we have the opportunity, Psalm 135.18 tells us that we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. This was dramatized to me in an amazing way on one of our tours to Egypt. We had a tour to Egypt. We had outstanding guys. We had a very informed tour of the Cairo Museum, which is really worth seeing because you really get an in-depth picture of, of the background of ancient Egypt. But, of course, you come away realizing that they worshipped death with their mummies and all the rest. But it's interesting, Egypt, of course, worshipped many, many things. But do you know what was the top of the heap, so to speak, the primary god that was above them all in their, in their hierarchy of, of these things? A thing called the scarab. How many of you have seen a scarab on a piece of jewelry or as an Egyptian celebrated kind of thing? You know what the scarab is? It's a dung beetle. It's a dung beetle. And because when camel feces or something else is on the side of the road, in minutes, suddenly these things were all over it. They seemed to come out of nowhere. And because of that apparent phenomenon, they identified the scarab with creation. I can't, you know... Um, <laughs> develop that logic. But that was the thing they worshipped. We left Cairo and we're going out in the back country for various reasons, going some places. And as we drove on the left of our vehicle, you'd see what looked to be like concrete revetments and a river. But as you look more closely, it wasn't concrete, it was trash. It was white, but it was really, when you look more closely, it was trash. And the river wasn't blue water, it was gray. It was sewage. And as you travel through Egypt, 50 going on 60 million people, this is not just some small back country, this is, they, they not only live in poverty, they live on a dunghill, on a dunghill. And it really hit me, this is some not disenfranchised, overlooked culture, this is a country that ruled the world, even before Assyria did. They worship the dung beetle. And I remember, I got very quiet for the rest of the tour. I didn't really explain the story tour until we left the country. I didn't want to offend the guys that, or whatever might overhear me. But I got very morose in that tour because I, I suddenly realized how literally it's true. They worshipped, became like what they worshipped. Is the world cruel and unforgiving? You worship the world and you will become what? Hard, cruel, unforgiving. 
Make the list. Make the list. Worship materialism, you'll become vain. If you worship Christ, you'll be like Him. What's He like? Read 1 Corinthians 13 and plug His name. And it fits. See, that's another reason you don't worship demons. It's another reason you do worship Jesus Christ. Because you'll become like the one you worship. But let's move on. Verse 21. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of the thefts. Murder, drugs, sex, thefts. Sounds like today, doesn't it? It's interesting that in our case, we even subsidize murders before birth. Get very inventive here. See, the low point of Israel was when they offered their children to the god Moloch. They put their children in the brazen arms of this heated idol. In our culture, we've gone one further than that. We slaughter our children in the Holy of Holies. God says, you are the temple of God. That's where we've chosen to murder our children. And of course, it's interesting, the word sorcery, you need to understand the Greek word. The word sorcery has sort of a medieval sound to it. The Greek there that's translated from is pharmakia. It, has, it involves the use of drugs. The use of drugs. Among my collection of commentaries, I have one by J.A. Seiss. He was born in 1823, published his commentary before the Civil War. And he's a quaint commentary, I enjoy him, but I'd like to share with you just one paragraph that he has about this topic. This is written in 1860. We have only to think of the use of alcoholic stimulants, of opium and tobacco, of the range of cosmetics and medicants, to increase love attractions, of resorts to pharmacopoeia in connection with sensuality, of magical agents and treatments alleged to come from the spirit world for the benefit in this, of the thousand impositions in the way of medicines and remedial agents, encouraging mankind to reckless transgression with the hope of easily repairing the damages of nature's penalties, of growing prevalence of crime induced by these things, setting loose and stimulating to activity the vilest passions, which are eating out the moral sense of society for the beginnings of that moral degeneracy to which the seer here alludes as characteristic of the period when the sixth trumpet is sounded. (laughs) Sounds like it was written yesterday. Does that describe our culture? He wrote this before the Civil War. I think it's interesting. Pointing out that he was seeing some of the signs, but he said it would be characteristic of the days of the sixth trumpet. Don't misunderstand. I don't say we're in the days of the sixth trumpet, but boy, you sure get the impression we're getting ready for it. But you might be interested to know that the drug trade is the largest economic constituency in Washington. They have the largest money power, the largest lobby, and they control, apparently, anyone they need to control. Because they have money and the billions on the one hand, and they have enforcement machinery to endanger the families on the other. They don't call them drug lords for nothing. Washington, D.C., the District of Corruption. It's a, and you tie those funds to the covert intelligence community, which some believe are presently controlling affairs in our political life. Something else I came across that's kind of interesting I have to share with you. I've been studying the ancient cultures for a number of reasons, and I discovered that in the, uh, in the ancient cultures, especially the kingdom of Persia, they had laws to protect the family because of their own self-interest. 
the power of those cultures were power of how big their armies were. Their army size was determined by the number of sons their population would bear. So they protected the family and gave the father an economic stipend and encouragement to have large families. Abortion was a capital crime. I was startled by that. You think of these pagan cultures as being stupid. No, we're stupid. They're pretty smart. Population growth to them was a strategic resource in any case. It also mentions theft here. You know, murder, drugs, sex, theft. Theft is not just some guy with a gun in your house at night. Theft includes the socialized abrogation of property rights. Plunder and confiscation are not limited to individuals. Its most insidious form includes social policy and institutionalized theft. Now, deception is on the increase. And 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this is one place maybe let's pause. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3.13 But evil men and seducers shall become worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. If I characterize our age, especially in America, but not just America, in Europe and Israel and elsewhere, I call it the age of deceit. Sellouts by our elected representatives, all of them, both sides of the aisle. So what do we do about it? Verse 14 tells us, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. In other words, do your biblical homework. Indeed, indeed. And be not deceived. Ephesians 5, 6 will deal with that. Okay, that's chapter 9. We've got time. Let's hit chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. John says, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was, as it were, the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. So here we have a mighty angel. There are 76 references to angels in the book of Revelation. But I would say that many, many able scholars, and I share the same view, see this mighty angel as Christ. The word angel, by the way, is just untranslated. The word angel is messenger. So we see another mighty messenger come down. And uh, I'm going to tell you quite frankly that there are a number of scholars, Godet, Vincent, Pettengill, Dahan, Ironside, Walter Scott, William Kelly, Donald Barnhouse, and myself and others, that see this angel as Jesus Christ. I'll show you why. But before I do, I want you to be aware of the fact there are many able scholars, William Newell, John Walvoord, J. Vernon McGee, and others, who do not. So whichever view you take, you're in good company, okay? I'll show you why they have a problem with it when we get there. But why are they like Christ? Well, first of all, he's clothed with a cloud. You get to Exodus 16 and 19 and 24, uh, Psalm 104. Remember Matthew 17, the transfiguration, he was clothed with a cloud. And in Luke 21, we find that. Acts chapter 1, 9, we have that implied. And, of course, in Revelation 1, verse 7, we had that. So the clouds are frequently identified with Jesus Christ. We see a rainbow up on his head, and that may be the same rainbow we've observed in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. His face was like the sun. That sounds like chapter 1, verse 16. It again sounds like Matthew 17 at the transfiguration. And his feet as pillars of fire. That sounds like Revelation chapter 1, verse 15. And later on we're going to find that he roars like a lion in verse 3. And that, that's reminiscent of chapter 5, verse 5 of Revelation. And we'll get to verses 5 and 6 in this chapter where he swears. And that's what causes a lot of people a problem. I'll come to that when we get there. 
Jesus often appeared in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. You often find that phrase. And uh, uh, those are regarded by most scholars as pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And Exodus 3, uh, Judges 2, 6, many times in 6, 2 Samuel 24, a lot of places. You can look those up. This one here will turn out to appear to have the authority of God's throne, which is another supportive thought of Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, this mighty angel appears three times in the scripture. We found him in chapter 7, holding back the judgments before this work of grace, of the sealing of the 144,000. In chapter 8, verse 5, he was the messenger of the covenant, pouring out fire of judgment. Now we find him here. And you study those three places, you can argue it's prophet, priest, and king. And so some people who see these three appearances see them in three specific roles. But we'll move on. Verse 2. And he had in his hand a little book open, and set his right foot upon the sea, and his left upon the earth. Now there's a lot of conjectures as what book are we talking about. I think the abundance of opinions is that it's the book that we've been talking about all along. The seven-sealed book is now totally unsealed. And he has it in his hand. But his position is that of a conqueror, taking possession. He's claiming the whole world. In Deuteronomy 11, you may recall, in Joshua 1, every place you set your foot upon will be yours kind of thing. That was to Moses and to Joshua, respectively. He's putting his feet on the land and on the sea. In Psalm 8, verse 6, in Hebrews 2, 8, it says that all things must be put under his feet. And that would seem to be idiomatically indicated here. You see, you and I are tenants. The landlord's coming. Verse 3, and he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. There again, you see, we have this lion of the tribe of Judah, possible echo there. And when he cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, (laughs) here is a strange issue of the book of Revelation. By the way, the lion's roar is also mentioned in Proverbs 19.12 and Joel 3.16, Old Testament references too. It's interesting, in John 12, when the Father spoke to Lord Jesus on the earth, the people stood by and heard it, but thought it had thundered. It's interesting. Anyway, okay. But now these seven thunders are an interesting mystery, because these seven thunders uttered their voices in verse 3. In verse 4, when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, John says, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And then it goes on. Well, <laughs> what I, when I get to heaven, one of the things I want to ask John, I have a list of things to ask John, <laughs> why did he mention them at all? You know, if they thundered, he wasn't supposed to write. Great, don't write, John. No, he told us seven thunders uttered their voices, but he didn't tell us what they said. And as a result, libraries are full of theological conjectures as to what the seven thunders said. Now, It's interesting that this is the only sealed thing in the book of Revelation. If you contrast the book of Revelation to the book of Daniel, you know Daniel was sealed, Revelation was not. Revelation is the unsealed book. We've talked a lot about that. There's one thing in the book of Revelation that's sealed. These seven thunders, whatever they said. I have a view that many people think I'm being facetious or flippant. And I can understand they think that because I am so flippant and facetious so often. But... I believe that one reason this is in your Bible is to prevent any doctrine being built on the basis that the canon is complete. Don't misunderstand me. I believe it is complete in that practical sense. However, 
There are many people that misapply 1 Corinthians 13.10, arguing that the gifts of the Spirit were only to operate until the canon was complete. Now, you can destroy that argument in many ways, but one of the easiest ways is to point out that the canon is not complete yet. The canon won't be complete until those seven thunders speak and are recorded in the Scripture, because all this, of course, is prophetic. So if you're interested in that and want to get into some controversy, something to offend everyone, I encourage you to get our briefing package on the spiritual gifts. I do believe they're for today. That does not mean that everything that masquerades today is, but the point is uh, you can document, by the way, the spiritual gifts in the church for four centuries in the, the writings of the Antonicene Father, the fathers of the church prior to the Council of Nicaea. So those arguments are, are pretty empty. But by the way, I have to point out to you, those of you that figure that, gee, these voices should be somewhere in the Scripture, it's interesting to notice that in Psalm 29, verses 4 through 9, you'll find thunders that have seven voices. And it mentions them there. And some scholars suspect that whatever these thunders are really talking about, it has some link to Psalm 29. And so, um, in the interest of time, I won't dwell on that now, but you can make it in your notes. Psalm 29, verses 4 through 9, you might find provocative, but don't misunderstand me. I believe they're sealed. When it says they're sealed, I believe it, which means I don't think we really need to conjecture. Verse 5, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things that are therein that there should be delay no longer. Your Bible says time no longer. It's misleading. The Greek word implies not time in the sense of chronos but a delay. There shall be delay no longer. Now, the people who have problems with this mighty angel being Jesus Christ have a problem because he's, he's swearing by the Creator. But that, first of all, in my opinion, betrays a lack of understanding of the Trinity because the Holy Spirit and the Father, as well as the Son, have the creation attributed to Him. And you need to understand that God Himself put Himself under oath to Himself when He made His covenant with Abraham, as Hebrews 6 amplifies for us. And He also did it when He declared His Son to be a high priest. Hebrews 7 uh, declares that. And He also put Himself under oath when He promised David that Christ would come from His family as amplified in Acts chapter 2 is mentioned. So, for Jesus to swear by himself, so to speak, why not? He can swear by there's nothing higher. So I don't have a problem with that. But some people do, and that's why they suspect that maybe this is really some kind of you know, super angel rather than Christ himself. And there's good scholars on both sides of that viewpoint. But it's interesting, you see, this is the place where Jesus prays for the world. It may shock you to know that nowhere in the Scripture does Jesus pray for the world. Prays for His own. You may want to turn with me to John 17. Just to show you, here, John 17, the most intimate prayer in the Scripture, the Son to the Father. In verse 6, I won't go through the whole thing, obviously, we can spend hours on this one, but John 17, verse 6, Jesus says to the Father, I have manifested thy name unto the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. When you get to verse 9, he continues this vein, verse 9, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. It's interesting to notice that the world is Satan's. You and I 
by the grace of God and the grace of God alone, hopefully, been chosen out of the world. But there is a time that Jesus is going to pray. We speak of Jesus Christ as a kinsman redeemer, a goel, indeed. But he is also the avenger of blood. And that's the role we're going to start seeing unfold as we go forward. Now, while we're on, on the way back to Revelation, you might want to stop by 1 John. As long as you're finding your way back, 1 John. Why does Jesus not pray for the world? Your answer is 1 John 5.19. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. You see the distinction scripturally. If you want to understand the whole story, I again point you to reread Psalm 2. The second psalm is a dialogue, or I should say a trialogue, between three people. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and it lays out the whole program. It may shock you to know that God has never reigned on the earth. Remember when he sang the song, he reigns above. No, no, he hasn't reigned on the earth. Surely he indeed is the sovereign king over all the universe, both heaven and earth. He has ruled, overruled, intervened upon the earth. He governs in a manner that appears sometimes to you and I as rather remote or incomplete. He's never used his absolute power to bring an end to evil. Demonic evil, human rebellion, global injustice and suffering. And he does not receive the honor and worship that is his due. That's all about to change. When we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. That's what we're asking for. Has it happened yet? No, but it will. His reign on the earth is going to be inaugurated in chapter 11. Verse 17. Verse 7, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Which mystery are we talking about? There's several mysteries in the scripture. You can do a whole doctrine of, of mysteries. There's a handful of different mysteries. What is the primary mystery from end to end? And that is this whole dilemma of evil in the world. That evil is permitted to increase, and um, it's going to continue to increase until the world is ripe for judgment. The price has been paid the sentence is about to be exacted. The voice which I heard from heaven, verse 8, which spake unto me again, said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. So we have seven seals been loose, so the book is open in the hand of the angel. And John says, I went to the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it, eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. Now it's interesting... The idea of the Word of God as being food is not foreign to our ears. In Matthew 4.4 we see it spoken of as the bread of life. 1 Peter 2.2 is the milk. 1 Corinthians 3 we see it spoken of as the meat. Psalm 119.103 speaks of it as honey. So these idioms are not foreign to our ears. But it's interesting. Verse 10 says, I took the little book out of the angel's hand, ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Well, hold your place. Let's just take a couple of these. Turn to Jeremiah 15, 16. Jeremiah says, verse 16 of chapter 15, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the uh, joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord of hosts. Another example of this, turn to Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel chapter 2. It surprises many to discover there's other chapters in Ezekiel by, in addition to chapter 38, but I thought we'd just, yeah, okay. 
chapter 2. Picking up about verse 9 of chapter 2 and continuing. And when I looked, behold, a hand was uh, sent to me, and lo, a scroll was within it. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without. And there was written in it lamentations and mourning and woe. And moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat what thou findest, eat this scroll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth that he caused me to eat that scroll. And when he had said to me, Son of man, eat, and fill my stomach with this scroll that I give thee, then did I eat, and it was in my mouth like honey for sweetness. And he said unto me, Son of man, go and get thee unto the the house of Israel and speak my words unto them, and on it goes. Again, it's interesting parallel, isn't it? It's interesting as we study prophecy, we get excited, and we should. It's intended to excite us and to increase our joy. And yet, as we really get into it, as we really begin to understand prophecy in its true perspective, we begin to realize that it deals with a gigantic gulf between God's righteousness and the sinfulness of man. And uh, when we really encounter reality and the futility of man, it's bitter. See, what we call achievement in civilization is seen in God's eyes to be rebellion and apostasy. And it's crying out to God for judgment. Our political, economic, and ecclesiastical life is emptiness. God is going to be vindicated in all of the blasphemies of men. And, of course, our entire hope is in Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting as I've been preparing for some conferences I'm going to speak at, and as I've been doing my homework uh, to refresh my awareness of some of these prophecies, on the one hand, I get excited because I'm convinced more than ever that the climax of God's plan is right on our horizon. On the other hand, I also have to confess to you it's been very difficult. Because as you really come to grips with the eminence of the judgment of God on all that you and I hold dear, I'm thinking in the cultural sense, our institutions, this this once great country we call America, this uh, light of freedom that has illuminated the world for a better part of two centuries, and we realize it's really over. As you look right in the eye of reality of what's going on in our country and in the world, in Europe and elsewhere, you realize that we're being plunged into that globalism that the Scripture talks about that's going to be the domain of a coming world leader that is the most anti-God that's ever walked the earth. As we realize the reality of that, it is in our belly bitter as we realize the all those things that we cherish, all the achievements, all the, the glories of our civilization are in the eternal yardstick blasphemies, apostasy, emptiness. Actually, vestiges of rebellion. Very disturbing. Verse 11. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. This is the midpoint of the book. John is being called to prophesy again. He's prophesied now for ten chapters. He's going to do another more than ten. See, chapters 11 through 14, we're going to discover are parenthetical. We've set set the stage for the seventh trump to blow. When it does blow, it'll yield seven bowls of wrath. But before we get to that, there's chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14 as a parenthetical passage. Remember I told you about the structure. Every time there's seven, 
there are six, and then a break, a change of subject, a recap, an editorializing, a, what the scholars call a parenthetical passage. We're going to enter next time this group of four chapters, 11, 12, 13, 14, that are parenthetical. The seventh trumpet will signal the wrath of God in chapter 15, verse 1. Now, we've gone through this um, hurriedly. Any study of the book of Revelation, whether you took <laughs> however much time you took, is, is but scratching the surface. I can only hope that we stimulate... Well, I'll give you two things. An overview of the book, but then also enough tools to, to do some digging. But um, as we look at chapter 10, there are some lessons here. It's interesting that John could not go on until he had assimilated the book. Seeing it, taking it, knowing it, in the intellectual sense, is not enough I think one of the things that you and I should resolve to do, not just nod in agreement, but really think about and make a commitment to, is to assimilate this book. Take it and eat it. That's what Jeremiah was told to do. That's what Ezekiel was told to do. And I'm sure we could find other examples. And that's what John here is instructed to do. There is pain in change. And there's always anguish in real obedience. But that's what God is calling us to. That's why he's called you here tonight. That's why he's called you into his family. And that's what he would have of each of us. God does not expect to convert the world through judgment. His plan is to save us through his grace. Yet his forthcoming judgment should cause us to be serious and sober and to think about all these things seriously and deeply. It should melt our pride, it should silence our excuses, and it should prepare our hearts to humbly receive His grace. So you too, I'm going to suggest, must prophesy again after the assimilation of His Word. Scripture says today, if you hear His voice, and by the way, He's shouting, if you'd hear His voice, harden not your hearts. So ends tonight's lesson. Next time... We're going to get into Revelation chapter 11. And the first couple of verses will deal with the rebuilding of the temple, which has begun. That is, the preparations have started. So if you want to do a little preparation for next time, uh, avail yourself of whatever resources you have to get up to speed a little bit on what's going on in Israel relative to the temple today. We'll talk a little bit about that next time. We'll also talk about these two strange characters that show up. These two witnesses, everybody has their theories, and we have ours, and we're probably just as wrong as everybody else, but we'll at least, but we'll at least take a look at that and see what, what that's all about. So uh, until next time, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Father, for your word. Indeed, Father, your word is on our lips, sweet as honey, and yet... In our belly, it is bitter as we realize the destiny of those that have yet to discover who you are, yet to discover the redemption that you've gone to such extremes to make available to us just for the asking. So we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, that you've ordained this opportunity for us to gather together. We know, Father, that in your kingdom there are no coincidences or accidents that we're all here together right now by your divine appointment. We pray, Father, that you would indeed... Continue to draw us ever closer to you. We pray, Father, that you would just minister to our hearts through your Holy Spirit to increase in each of us an appetite, a hunger, 
for your word that we indeed might assimilate it, that we indeed might also declare forth your word to the loved ones around us in our families and neighborhoods and workplaces that we just might be led by your spirit to do your work. We pray, Father, you'd help each of us to discover that uniquely fashioned, tailored ministry you have for each of us in these days. But above all, Father, we know you've called us for fellowship, and we pray, Father, you'd draw us ever closer to you. Help each of us to find more time to spend with you. For we ask this, that we indeed might grow in grace the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. For we commit ourselves before you, indeed, in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.